Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 25 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, July the 19th. First, I'll be talking to Jerry Komninos. CEO of Hydrolite, which is revolutionising the portable power industry with its Hydrocell fuel cell technology, a fuel cell that generates its own power when activated by dipping it in water. Hydrolite's products are aimed at reducing the waste associated with single-use batteries and raising awareness of alternative energy solutions. The company has developed technology that can harness the electrons liberated from a magnesium anode when immersed in water into a usable direct current power. The hydrolyte system is a revolutionary technology that creates power using a chemical reaction between metal and water. The hydrocell uses this reaction to efficiently capture electrons released during this process with the water acting as a catalyst to create this reaction once it comes into contact with the hydrocell. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And then I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen, looking at how to make government decision-making and pilot programs more accountable. But first, let's talk to Jerry Komninos. Jerry, tell us all about the hydrocell fuel technology. Um, okay, so, uh, Leon, the hydrocell fuel technology has been around for... The, the, the concept of using uh, magnesium and other materials to cr- create power has been around for a long time. 
uh, we're the first people that have taken this and, and patented it around the world and therefore uh, secured the technology and also have started to commercialise the product. This is Hydrolite International. Yep. So, uh, so effectively it is a fuel cell, a fuel source, which provides electricity by activating in water. So our fuel cell would be, um, if you left this on the shelf for 25 years and you picked it up in 25 years' time, it would still have 100% of the power that it has today because nothing happens with a fuel cell until you activate it in water as opposed to a traditional lithium-ion battery or battery which you buy from the shops. You put it in your uh, torch or any other device and it, it's continually degrading over time and runs out of power. So let, let me understand this. You have a fuel cell, you dip it in water, and that generates power for lights. Correct. Uh, at the moment, we've got uh, a, a range of products that um, we can use the fuel cell in, so lanterns, lights, torches, uh, and power devices, which would charge mobile phones. Uh, we're working on various uh, applications of the hydrocell to uh, charge uh, laptops, and over time, uh, the, 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 the application of the hydrocell is, is kind of endless as to where you could use it. So you could, we could use it in miner's hats, for instance, where anywhere where you use a, a traditional battery, uh, which uh, re- requires a battery source, we, we, we have the ability to fill that space. And the hydrocell actually generates its own power as opposed to a traditional battery? Uh, yes, it generates its own power. Yep, correct. Does it have long-time use? Uh, So I'll I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, A single hydrocell, if you put it into a a power device and as you keep it hydrated, would have about 250 hours uh, of of use. 250 hours. So the equivalent of about 30 batteries. Normally a battery you put into a torch and if you leave it on for eight hours, that, that, that battery will be dead. The hydrocell would go for about 250 hours, so equivalent of about 30 AA batteries. So what happens at the end of that 250 hours? Do you dip it in water again? Uh, no. Uh, at the end of the 250 hours, you have to buy a new hydrocell. Effectively, the hydrocell is depleted because the magnesium rod has been used up. Uh, it doesn't use fossil fuels, so it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the hydrocell is completely recyclable, and we are working on a on a version which will be completely biodegradable. Um, so there's no, there's no fossil fuel, there's no poisonous uh, remnants. It's all natural, either natural met- metals and, and carbons or uh, recyclable plastic. These would be terrific for communities off the grid or remote communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, statistics say there are about 1.3 billion people around the world that don't have either electricity or have intermittent electricity. So... Absolutely. They, they, they are dependent on candles, which are dangerous, as in start fires, uh, kerosene lamps, which are a combination of giving off poisonous gases and, and effectively killing people, and uh, very intermittent light, um, and or candles, uh, sorry, and or batteries. So, uh, yeah, w- we are absolutely an alternative and a cheap alternative for uh, the, the third world and people without electricity. Now, you operate out of Melbourne, but you, uh, you also have uh, offices in the Philippines, and I believe in China as well. Uh, correct. We have a research team in the Philippines um, that uh, do all our R&D and, and effectively uh, d- 
develop new products and, and innovate the hydrocell as we go along. Uh, we've got three contract manufacturing factories out of China. Uh, we've got a small office in China, and then we've got a presence in Canada, the USA, and we're looking to open up uh, an office in, in London, in Europe, to, to, to service Europe. Well, that's quite extraordinary. So, so are you expecting quite a big demand for this? Uh, yeah, all indications are. So we're in the process of uh, fulfilling our first four production orders at the moment. Um, effectively, the product's complete. We're just uh, waiting on a little bit of uh, packaging. So uh, the four production orders are complete, fully certified by an independent uh, certification company that the products all, all work and are 100% of uh, 100% quality. Um, yep, uh, the, the the numbers are kind of uh, significant in terms of what we think we we can do here. We've got significant opportunities around the world that we're, we're looking at, and we've got an extensive growth strategy into the USA, which we're starting to execute at the moment. So, I mean, this, these fuel cells run on water and air. Is that right? Uh, yep, effectively, the the water the water activates it. Um, and the fuel cell requires oxygen, correct? So if you look at many of our products, or all of our products, the only, the only way they would be different to a traditional torch is that they have uh, holes in the, in the product to allow oxygen in to continue the reaction that's happening within the fuel cell. This process of water and air, that creates what, like a, a chemical reaction? The reaction between a, 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 a cathode, a magnesium cathode, and a, f- a carbon salt infused membrane, effectively. Yep. How long did it take to work that well, to work that technology? Uh, so Hydrolite's been around for about four years. So uh, I think the, the the working of the technology was relatively quick. Uh, perfecting it took a little bit of time, and we've worked really hard in the last nine months since I've been on board to uh, perfect our production processes in China. So tell us about the technology. Who developed it? Uh, so developed by a, a group of four people, um, two, two Australians and two Americans, um, and Hydrolite bought that technology three or four years ago. Uh, that technology, uh, so two, two of the people that developed the technology still remain within Hydrolite. So one's our head engineer and one's our sales director. The technology is patented, I take it? Fully patented around the world, yep. So uh, you, you would have many forward orders? Uh, we, we have significant interest. Um, yeah, at kind of as as we speak, uh, we've been notified of a, an order, a potential order out of Zimbabwe. Uh, we've got significant orders or significant interest in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ghana, across Africa, Turkey, Sri Lanka, um, and we've got a significant amount of interest in in the USA. Uh, potentially uh, surprising, um, but you know, in, in the USA, there'd be. Five, depending on what statistics you use, five to ten million preppers, uh, people that think the world's about to end and are prepared for that. Um, and this product is absolutely ideal for them because, as you said, it sits on the shelf and it's absolutely guaranteed that, that, that when they need it, they just dip it in water and they'll have uh, power to, to generate light or charge mobile phones, uh, run radios, etc. So preppers would be a big market for you. They, <laughs> they are. So we've got four or five... Uh, large e-commerce websites that service that that uh, segment of the market looking to pick up a product in the next three to four months. But I'd imagine that a lot of your markets would be in the third world, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Well, once we get this right, uh, the our penetration into the third world should should dwarf um, what we do in the first world. Uh, from a first world perspective, I think we do have niche uh, products which we want to roll out over time, again, around that emergency preparedness um, 
space, but as you rightly say, the, the third world and, and the ability to bring uh, cheap power and, and clean power to um, people without electricity is, is really where the market is. I'd imagine Africa would be enormous. Yep, absolutely. So we have we have one of our business development people who's been in Africa for two or three months now uh, securing orders for us. Uh, so, so what's next? Uh, so next is is effectively we're on the uh, we're, we're on the path of commercialising this business. So we're still um, uh, at, at a point where we're not break even as as yet. Um, so I guess the strategy is twofold: is to raise a little bit more capital to really uh, t- take advantage of the opportunities we've got ahead of us, and to continue to commercialise the business. But like like many other businesses, if we sit still, we're not going to uh, someone's going to overtake us. So, so tell us about the capital raising. How are you going to be doing that? Uh, so we've got an IEM out there. We're looking to raise about five million Australian dollars, um, and yeah, we, we, uh, it's a dollar per share. So we're valuing the company at about twenty million dollars pre-capital, uh, which is um, just an indication of, of 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 the historical valuation, but where we think we can take this business over time. Well, Jerry, I think I think this is an extraordinary development and an extraordinary business. Uh, it's a, it's an exciting journey. I think it certainly is. I think uh, apart from the technology and the product and 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 the market ahead of us, I think what's what's potentially really uh, exciting from our perspective is that w- we have the ability to not only uh, in, uh, provide a product and a solution which is environmentally friendly, but is actually. Uh, from a health perspective, improves the health and, and well-being of billions of people around the world. Well, Jerry, thank you very much for your time. No problem, thank you. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Uh, Nicholas Gruen, now uh, you have a view that there are very few pilot programs for the third sectors that have reached any national prominence. Why is this the case? Um, well, we have for uh, really, I suppose, since people started thinking of. Uh, Liberalisation and uh, and uh, the, this idea that sort of we started thinking about in the from the late seventies on that we'd like to make things more like markets. The uh, it's been very appealing to think that we should um, governments might fund pilot programs and the successful ones would expand and uh, might go national. I can't think of a single example of that. There are some things which. Um, which government kind of announced that they would um, take something that already existed national. There are very few of those too, but land care is an example, a long time ago now. Um, and uh, so so what happens is that it, it's a kind of fine theory, but in fact the world of social services is well uh, stocked with existing programs, and we actually don't have the infrastructure to properly um, measure success. Uh, and, and, and then, even if we did, and even if we could say this is a successful program, then we need to really have a way of saying it's more successful than the program that we've got. Uh, so that's the first hurdle. Now, what you'll find if you're running a uh, not-for-profit venture, which, you know, that's the sort of thing which might uh, qualify to be scaled up. What you'll find is that if you go to the government and you say, this is a really worthwhile venture, they'll say, well, um, 
you should get it independently evaluated. So off you go to Deloitte or my company, Lateral Economics or some other company, uh, and you say, well, um, evad- you know, give us a cost-benefit analysis of this or some kind of uh, evaluation of, of, of our program. Then you'll pay a consultant quite a lot of money. It might be 50 grand. It's more likely to be over 100 grand. And there are no um, guidelines according to which one would do the the evaluation. And when you do the evaluation, you then hand it to the government. You say, look how good this evaluation is. And guess what the government says? The government, say the Treasury or the Department of Finance in a uh, in, at the Commonwealth level or Treasury and Finance at the state level, they say, oh, well, that's very interesting. Thanks for that. Um, but you commissioned the study. You paid for the study. And we know that consultants arrive at conclusions that they're paid to consult at. So you've got a catch-22, which is that governments are um, are involved in this whole idea that they'll sort of choose from the best, Uh and then they sort of set this catch-22 up, which is that you can't really go anywhere without a supposedly independent evaluation. But there's no such thing as an independent evaluation because you'll be con- you'll be paying for it, you'll be commissioning it, and there won't be taken much notice of. So, so, so that's the first really big problem with with this theory that we have that we will fund the. Uh, the successes. We don't fund the successes. We just have one pilot after another. Well, this gets us back to an old issue that you and I have discussed many times about having an evaluator general, in which case it would make sense, wouldn't it, to have an auditor general evaluate these programs, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, if you had to... if uh, I mean, my reason for proposing an evaluator general is quite a, quite, there's a sort of a fairly long story behind that. But yes, in this particular case... I think it is true that you could ask the evaluator general to evaluate a program, but you see, there's a lot more to it than that. That's really just the first step, because then, the then um, what we really need to do is we need to have uh, we need to to we need this evaluated, and then we need it compared with what we're doing at the moment, and so we need that evaluated, and we need both of them evaluated independently. Um, so we're a long way from all of these things. And once you're doing all that stuff, it's it's true. You could give that to some kind of expanded auditor general. Even once you've got that far, there's actually a problem, quite a big problem, which is that um, we're not in a supermarket choosing between different brands of vitamin vitamin C. Um, I use that example because I've got a sore throat and I'm thinking about that. Um, because uh, different programs do different things. And so it's if, if a program is innovative, let's say, and, and I always use the example of a program that um, the Centre for Social Innovation built when I was chairing it um, uh, a few years ago. And we built a program called Family by Family, which was designed to... Um, uh, it was really an early intervention program to prevent families falling into crisis. Now, in a sense, we have not we we don't do much early intervention with families in crisis, but um, 
one of the things, to expand it, it, was, it wasn't that cheap, so to expand it, one would have to anticipate that it lowered the need for um, some of the services that were deliberate, that, that, were, that we supply when families fall into crisis. In other words, the two things are not, uh, it's, it's, well, uh, you can say there's just more of one thing and you get less of another. In, in one case, uh, so the first problem there is that um, you have people whose jobs rely on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the existing service. So there'll be lots of politics around where we'll hear, as we did in New South Wales, for instance, when, social, when there were fewer social workers employed, uh, you'll hear that the government doesn't care about families, that we're cutting the employment of social workers, even if outcomes are improving. Uh, more generally, uh, there are many ways in which the sort of service um, that we built, which was a family mentoring service where one family would mentor another family and and, and some of that coaching, the coaching of those mentoring relationships might have been given to social workers or or uh, people who were trained to, to, to do this work. Uh, even here, um, the, it isn't just a matter of spending more dollars on one and then less dollars on another. The, the, for the, for the, the, the mentoring program to expand and really become an important part of the system, the whole of the other system, the sort of backup system when families fell into crisis, would have to be transformed and refashioned, redesigned, remodeled, and there'd have to be some relationship between the two programs built as well. Now, that's not a matter of kind of just cranking up the expenditure on one program and cranking it down in the other. It's a matter of the, the programs being transformed through time. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, it's not something that our governments are well set up to do, and therefore it's not something they do do. So how, what's the best way of evaluating these programs? Well, my proposal for an evaluator general is that um, there is independence in uh, the evaluation of programs, but my independence is an independence which is really designed to try to help people on the ground, people in the field, improve their performance. So what would happen is that Oh, is in the this idea in its if it was fully implemented would be that there wouldn't be any program that didn't have as part of it uh, or alongside it a monitoring and evaluation system which was formally independent from and separate from the program itself. Now, in fact, they'd have to collaborate very closely, but. The whole idea of that is that it solves all of these problems that I've talked about. Firstly, there is continual independent evaluation and monitoring on evaluation of everything that the government does. Secondly, this information is ultimately made public. And that means that there is some capacity when a program, one program is performing particularly well and is 
is raising the prospect of lowering expenditure on programs that don't work very well, that's all public. And once it's public, then the political system is much more likely to uh, push the, the system, push the politicians and the senior managers towards the kinds of transformations that would improve the whole system. Uh, and to do that, they will have to, uh, there will have to be some discomfort felt uh, by the politicians, by the system, because some people are being redeployed, they're being told they're not, they're not as good as they think, and, um, and the system is being transformed and some people are getting jobs and other people are losing jobs, and that's not something which uh, politicians or even senior managers like to do. They tend to need to be pushed. So, so it, it, it is an attempt to solve all of the problems that I've mentioned to you. Well, that's quite an innovative approach, Nicholas, to have every program with an inbuilt evaluation. And let's see whether governments actually listen to that, because I think it's very badly needed. All right. Yes. Well, let's let's see. I think when it happens somewhere in the world, I think it might uh, it might take off as an idea. I've certainly there, there's been some interest expressed uh, about it to me in New Zealand and the United Kingdom. But but of course we need. Uh, we need someone to take the first step. We'll see. We'll see who uh, who manages to do it. Well, thank you very much, Nicholas Corinne. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Leon. Thank you. So, what's happening in the news? Well, China released second quarter figures showing that its economy slowed to six point two percent, the weakest rate in at least twenty seven years as the country's trade war with the U.S. took its toll. That was in line with analysts polled by Reuters. The second quarter growth was the country's slowest pace since the first quarter of 1992, the earliest quarterly data on record, according to Reuters. Clearly, China's months-long trade dispute with the US is weighing on its economy. And Scott Morrison's $800 pension bonus has been branded a slap in the face for retirees after emerge only seniors who don't own a family home have any chance of securing the full amount. The changes to pensioners' deeming rate used to determine investment income for the asset test was billed as a pension bonus worth up to $804 for singles, $1,053 for couples. However, the vast majority of aged pensioners, 75%, will get nothing from the changes to the deeming rate because they don't have investments in super, shares or bank deposits. Only seniors who do not own a family home will qualify for the maximum amount of $804 or $30 a fortnight. National seniors advocate Ian Henschke said the outcome was far less than retirees had hoped for and won't help women who are less likely to have super or invest in the stock market. We will campaign on this all the way to the next election, he warned. It will cost $600 million over the next four years, but is substantially less than the costs of reducing the deeming rate to realign it closer with a cash interest rate, as it was in the Howard government years. So, the decision to cut the headline deeming rate from 3.25% to 3% fall short of the demands from retiree groups in recent weeks, as the government rules out a more generous change so as to protect the budget surplus. And wages for certain mining jobs have soared beyond boom time levels and some workers will enjoy an extended period of premium wages amid a quadruple squeeze on skills. An East Coast infrastructure boom, tighter rules on foreign labour and low enrolments in university mining courses have coincided with a resurgence in mining investment, forcing big miners to pay more for engineers, geologists and technicians. 
Soaring wages in the mining sector come in weak wages growth of 2.3% per year in the broader economy. A study of remuneration paid to 35,000 mine workers by advisory firm BDO Remsmart found at least 12 mining jobs were now commanding higher wages than at the peak of the last resources boom. The list includes senior mine engineers, heavy diesel fitters, senior geologists, electricians and excavator drivers, while maintenance superintendents were among the best paid, with medium total remuneration for the latter job above $200,000 per year, including superannuation. And the nation's banks and superannuation funds will face tough new controls, including extraordinary powers to veto top executives after a review of the peak financial regulator slammed its culture of conformity. The review, led by former competition regulator Graham Samuel, urged APRA to take a more forceful and public approach to calling out bad behaviour rather than relying on behind-the-scenes talks with financial giants. The review found problems with the regulator's conformist culture, detected little understanding of cyber risks or fintechs, and called out a failure to stand up for superannuation fund members. The prudential regulator was also skewered for preferring to deal with financial institutions behind the scenes and was urged to punish banks, insurers and super funds more publicly for their failures. The review recommended the immediate launch of multiple CBA-style inquiries. The main conclusion of this review is that APRA's internal culture and regulatory approach needs to change, the report's executive summary says. The findings clear the way for drastic new laws and a more assertive approach to regulating banks, insurance companies and super funds after a string of scandals which inflicted serious harm on consumers. An AMP has said the $3.3 billion sale of its life insurance arm to a foreign buyer was unlikely to proceed as planned and that it had scrapped its interim dividend. AMP said in a statement that the sale of its wealth protection business to London-based Resolution Life is unlikely to proceed in its current form because it's unlikely to get approval from New Zealand's central bank. Resolution Life said it had been told the Reserve Bank of New Zealand would not consider the required change of control application unless the company altered its current branch structure to include separate ring-fenced assets for the benefit of New Zealand policyholders. It said since the transaction was unlikely to proceed in its current form, AMP was now working with Resolution Life to, to determine whether there is a solution that addresses policyholders' interests, regulatory requirements and provides certainty of execution. In more bad news for shareholders, still reeling from potential criminal misconduct revealed in last year's Banking Royal Commission, AMP said its dividend for the first half of 2019 would not be paid given the uncertainty surrounding the AMP life sale. AMP said its board would review any revised transaction proposed for the sale of AMP Life to determine if it was in the best interest of policyholders, the company and shareholders. And Australia's defence industry has a problem. Only one in five employees of the country's largest 20 military firms are female, and only one in seven managerial roles are held by women. These findings are from a report by Canberra-based consultancy Rapid Context, which also found that women were leaving the industry at a far higher rate than their male colleagues. Sexism, sexual harassment and gender bias were listed as some of the reasons for the imbalance. And Elders is set to enter farming's wholesale battlefield with the acquisition of Australian independent rural retailers. The acquisition gives Elders a major footprint in the wholesale supply of farm products and position it to compete more strongly with Canadian fertiliser giant Nutrien as it moves to complete 
a $469 million takeover of Rural Co. The Australian Independent Rural Retailers Board said on Monday that it had recommended the cash and script offer, which values it at $187 million. And Australia's healthcare system has become increasingly unfair, costly and confusing, according to a new report, which has declared the federal government is facing an impending crisis which can only be averted by urgent reform. The report forecasts an exodus of young and healthy people from the private health system. Private Healthcare Australia says insurers are struggling to cope with older, sicker patients. The Grattan Institute says the government needs to consider industry reforms within 18 months. The Grattan Institute report paints a bleak picture of some of the private health system, saying it had become riddled with inconsistencies and perverse incentives. It said if current trends continue, Australia will find itself in a death spiral where young and healthy people abandon private health cover, leaving a larger proportion of unhealthier, older and expensive users. That will keep forcing premiums up, leading to a further exodus of healthy users and placing insurers under immense pressure to contain costs. And a newly released Treasury report points the finger at workers for Australia's persistently low wage growth. Australian workers are increasingly reluctant to change jobs and remain anchored in unproductive companies, Treasury claims. Because increased job switching leads to higher wage growth, only structural reforms designed to embolden workers to transfer between jobs will make a serious dent on wages and move the dial on innovation, the report asserts. Annual wage growth is currently 2.3%. It was 4% just prior to the 2008 financial crisis. And two out of five chief executives plan to keep pay rises flat or to rises of 2%, below the already sluggish rate of wage growth, according to a survey of 250 chief executives. As the Morrison government and Reserve Bank of Australia grapple with how to bolster the subdued 2.3% wage growth rate, the survey finds that 30% of chief executives are also investing in automation to reduce labour costs. The executive connection, the Kandasik survey of 251 chief executives, found 37% of chief executives plan to keep wages steady or adopt minimal increases of 0 to 2%. One third of CEOs are expecting to pay wage rises of 2 to 3%, and only 14% said that, said that they would increase wages by 4% or more. And the owners of Gold Coast Airport will pay lower interest rates on a $370 million expansion of its terminals if it meets annual carbon reduction targets. In an Australian first for a sustainability linked loan, a $100 million debt facility from Westpac and Commonwealth Bank to Gold Coast Airport is directly linked to a reduction in its carbon emissions footprint. It is a further sign of other non-energy industries starting to pull their weight to meet carbon reduction targets. While green bonds have been a growth market for companies who want to boost their environmental credibility in recent years, the development of the sustainability-linked loans, where companies adhere to strict environment targets, is expected to become even more popular and has already grown to $1 billion worldwide. Queensland Airports Limited, which owns Gold Coast, Townsville, Mount Isel and Longreach Airports, has signed up to the $100 million sustainability-linked loan as part of the redevelopment of the Gold Coast Airport. It will achieve discounted interest rates on the loan if it meets its goal to reduce carbon emissions by 15% over the next three years, before the new terminal opens in 2021. And Adani demanded the names of all federal agency scientists reviewing its contentious groundwater plans so it could check if they were anti-coal activists, emails obtained under Freedom of Information shows. 
Email show Adani gave the Federal Environment Department five days to provide the names of people from the CSIRO and Geoscience Australia involved in the review. Adani says it wrote to the department to request assurance that individuals involved in any review processes were independent. The revelation has alarmed CSIRO staff representatives who said it indicated Adani had a deliberate strategy to pressure scientists by searching for personal information it could use to discredit their work. And the Queensland Government has commenced legal proceedings against Adani Mining over claims that provided false or misleading information in an annual return for its Carmichael mine. The Department of Environment and Science has started the prosecution proceedings against the Indian Mining Company under the Environmental Protection Act in relation to information in its 2017-2018 annual return for the mine. The annual return requires information about planned and actual disturbance of land at the mine, a spokesman for the department said in a statement on Tuesday. The department alleges that Adani's annual return contained false and misleading information about the disturbance already undertaken at the mine during the annual return period. The matter is listed for mention at the Brisbane Magistrates Court on August 16th. Adani says the department's prosecution is over an administrative error which was self-reported in September 2018. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Philip Morris Australia Managing Director Tammy Chan, looking at how the company has closed the pay gap between male and female employees and embraced gender equality. It's a model for other businesses. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, looking at Australia's latest job market figures. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.